big part of engagement is uh, this concept called flow, which uh, a lot of a lot of extreme athletes and uh, anyone who's kind of top of their game uh, describes this state of total immersion in what they're doing and all the time recedes in the background. And in order to get into that flow state, well, first of all, you can't will it to happen. You can't just say, I'm in the flow state, you know, <laughs> won't happen. It seems like challenge and overcoming a, ch a hardship in some way, overcoming something is a good trigger for flow. Hey, welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pakulski. We scour the world to bring you the world's greatest humans, people who are going to help you express the greatness within to ultimately live your greatest life in a body you love. Today's guest is no exception. He is the host of the number one psychology podcast in the world. 2015, he was named one of the 50 groundbreaking scientists who are changing the way we see the world. He is currently a professor at Columbia University and the founder and director of the Center of Science of Human Potential. Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman is a cognitive scientist and humanistic psychologist exploring the mind, creativity, and the depths of human potential. My kind of guy. His early educational experiences made him realize that there's a deep reservoir untapped potential of students, including really, really bright and creative children who have been diagnosed with learning disabilities, including myself. So ladies and gents, this, this podcast is going to be a joy for you. Actually, Scott does a really good job of turning the tables back on me and asking me some questions, but I obviously do the favor and return the favor and ask him some very, very useful questions as well. I really enjoyed this conversation with Scott. Here's a couple of key points from the podcast, how to think about intelligence and how to have a growth mindset, passion, and engagement around intelligence, how to challenge your brain and effectively learn and build new skills, how to keep an open mind as you age and its importance for creativity, and ultimately the importance of a flow state and why we need a flow state and how to create it. Incredible conversation, incredible wealth of information. This gentleman, Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends over at realmushrooms.com. Realmushrooms.com slash Ben. Use the code BPAC if you're a first-time customer to get 25% off. This is an unheard of savings and they're hooking you up because you are a loyal listener of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. If you're a returning customer to Real Mushrooms, you can use the code MUSCLE for 20% off and for all orders thereafter. If you've been listening to the podcast for any duration of time, you know that this amazing company has been a longtime sponsor because their products work. I spend time vetting every one of our sponsors. This podcast has been sponsored by Real Mushrooms probably for coming up on four years they continue to come back because you're supporting them. Every one of our listeners, or at least many of our listeners, choose to support Real Mushrooms, not because of I say so, but because they find incredible results and this reality that Real Mushrooms is the highest quality mushrooms that exist anywhere. Many of the mushroom ingredients or mushroom products that you're purchasing in the US or maybe even in, in Europe, that I'm not, I don't know, but definitely in the US, they are often weighted with micellinated grain. So they grow them on grain. You're actually paying for the grain. You're actually paying for the active ingredient. With real mushrooms, we know we're getting 100% fruiting body. That's 100% organic. So you're going to get the actual benefits rather than really getting ripped off and, and paying for this micellinated grain. And whether or not there's benefit to the myce mycelium uh, remains to be seen. But ultimately, we know there's additional weight being added through this grain that it's being grown on. And ultimately, there's no benefit in eating grain with your mushrooms. 
Ladies and gents, use realmushrooms.com because ultimately it's, we want what we pay for and we want effective results and effective ingredients. And we know that this company has been vetted. I'm a huge fan of lion's mane. I take three grams of lion's mane at least once a day, usually before bed. I often will take reishi mushroom as well. I don't take it as consistently, but I'd say I take it three or four times a week. Certainly when my stress is elevated, I find reishi to be really effective for me as far as calming me down and regenerating my immune system. If I feel like I'm coming down with something, the first thing I suggest to myself and anybody else is reishi mushroom. So once again, ladies and gents, head over to realmushrooms.com slash Ben and use the code BPAC for 25% off. Now back to the show. Scott Barry Kaufman, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Pac-Man, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing really well. Just just discussing our, our fond memories of uh, Gold Gym in Venice. You are a fellow meathead and I welcome you to the clan. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I I, uh, I would say weightlifting is my favorite activity at the gym. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. That's good. Better than cardio. If you like cardio, I don't know if we could be friends, man. I mean, it's one of those things where you got to do it. You got you to do it. But uh, yeah. definitely not the most enjoyable aspect. Yeah, and I would say I, I get better results anyway when I do weightlifting. Like the the amount of calories I burn from building muscle outweighs the ten minutes on the treadmill I would do. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? It goes so far beyond the caloric expenditure, right? Most people that's yeah. like the you get that's the tip of the iceberg. But you know, there's there's the metabolic benefits, the hormonal benefits, the structural benefits, the the longevity benefits as far as vitality and quality of movement. Like you're, you're preaching to the choir now, right? Like I'm this is this is my this is Your my world. Jam. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just love it. I just love exercise. I love what, what it can do for people, both physically and mentally. So how long have you been at Gold's? You said you're there for a little while? Ever since the pandemic started. Nice. Why did you go from New York? This is kind of personal stuff, but why did you go from New York out to Venice during the pandemic? It seems like everyone seemed to be leaving California and you were heading in. Huh. Well, actually, everyone was leaving New York when the pandemic started. And to, we're, if we go all the way back in history to april 2020 i mean uh the new york city was the vortex yeah. of of the pandemic and uh, i happened to have been in santa monica on a sabbatical for three months and i decided to extend my stay a little bit yeah as far as places to be in the world i mean political agendas political climate aside like santa monica is hard to be man what a beautiful place mm. um just like uh it's like it's like paradise yeah that's true yeah. But it gets boring having the same weather every day. Man, I think I, I think I get used to it. I, yeah, I yeah. enjoyed it, man. I lived out there for three years, like I said, and I really enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I was, I'm joking anyway. If that's the kind of boring that you're going to have in your life, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah. oh, every day is perfect with the blue sky and sun, sun in the sky. I'm yeah. like, huh, it's tough. Yeah. Well, humans, humans crave variety. Truth. Yeah. Truth. So you're a professor at Columbia, and uh, how long have you been there? Um, I started teaching there, I believe, in 2018. Okay. And you've got the number one podcast in the world called, is it The Psychology? Um, yep, it's called The Psychology Podcast. It's yeah. uh, easy to remember the name, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. And so, obviously, you've had some amazing, amazing guests. I've been, I've been reviewing it and, and listening to some podcasts, and You've literally got the, the best thinkers in the world, obviously, as well as yourself. And the integration of that just seems to be uh, pushing the, the uh, envelope of understanding of psychology forward. And so I was so excited to have you on. I just, I'm a nerd when it comes to understanding um, ultimately human dynamics, why we do what we do, and how we can ultimately integrate the psychology and the physiological aspect of human nature and 
I thought I could I could come bring you on and, and pry some things out of that that uh, brilliant mind. Oh, thank you. Yeah, any anything you want, I'm open book. Awesome. So you, it seems as though, and you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems early in your career you're focused on the study of intelligence. Is that where you started? That is where I started. Uh, I started that way when I was two years old. Um, I was curious why certain people on the playground were more talented than me on the jungle gym, uh, you know, and why the kids um, in, uh, in 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 the special ed room were different than the kids in the gifted ed ed room. You know, at least why did we call them different? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, those questions about intelligence started very young, and and my career and my scientific career—that's where I started. Yeah. So uh, I would love to start there because, like, even though it's not really a topic of conversation of the podcast, I think it's a topic of interest to most people. And cool, you know, I've I've been interested in it in the multiple areas of intelligence that you know some people can have so many vast different areas of, of brilliance and intelligence. And you know, a little about my story in thirty seconds or less. I was told that I had a learning disability. I, I definitely had a speech impediment and I was obese as a kid. And so someone who grows up with a learning disability, or at least they're told they have a learning disability, I just thought I was an idiot. I just thought I couldn't learn anything. Everyone else was smarter than me. And uh, growing up, I found the things that I truly love. I found the things that I was passionate about. And now my my learning is just voracious. It's just impossible to stop me from learning. And now I'm someone who travels the world teaching thousands and thousands of people how to do very specific things around fitness, health, and longevity. Um, and, and you know, most people would say that I'm a genius in my right, right, in my space. And so for anyone out there listening who maybe has a story in their mind around not not being adequate intellectually, uh, it's, you know, thank goodness, it's hopefully just a story. But I'd love for you to explain whether or not it is a story or, or, or how we can truly start to delineate between what is intelligence in all these different uh, realms. Yeah, it's, the question is, how do you think about intelligence? Do you think about it as... Um, your smarts within a specific domain of life, or is it a general capacity mm. across different domains, or the people who are generally smarter than others? And both can be true at the same time as well. You know, there can be people who can be generally smarter, but there can be those who uh, are smarter than others in specific domains, but not necessarily generally. And then uh, the idea is, what is what is intelligence, and what does it mean to be smart? Is it abstract reasoning ability? Is it your ability to learn quickly? You know, is it your ability to apprehend knowledge well yes i think it's it's all those things but i also think there's a kind of personal intelligence that comes along when you have passion for something and you have commitment to something and you and you really see your expertise develop over a long period of time and you have mastery for something a certain intelligence develops there that is incomparable to to early stage intelligence so I've started to take the stance, and you can tell me if this is wrong, or at least the perspective of the brain as a muscle. So my experience personally is the more I learned about something that I loved, the more I was capable of learning about things that I didn't love. It was, it was my, my rate of acquisition was exponentially greater yeah. once I could just train my brain how to, one, focus, two, retain, three, recall. I was like, okay, well, this is relatively simple. Now I could do this in anything once I figured it out. But I literally didn't read a book until I was 15 years old. So I didn't really challenge my brain. I didn't know like how to focus, how to retain, or how to recall. So uh, I'm curious if, if that's something you found to be true is like training the brain in one area tends to diversify into others. I think there are different ways of looking at that. Uh, there's also possible that um, we, if we don't use certain areas of our brain, like we can actually 
um, we can compensate for disabilities and we can comp- compensate in, in various ways for underuse of certain brain areas by other brain areas kind of taking on those functions. You know, that's a very interesting um, as, uh, way that the brain is organized and we can reorder all different strategies to do things that maybe not be, might be the standard way of doing it. But I also think that, yes, the more you gain capacities in certain areas, the more like, yeah, it unlocks, it unlocks some levels you know, within that domain where you can then more quickly move up the ladder. And you see that even in schooling, you see that with math, you know, you, you got to learn basic basic arithmetic before you can start doing calculus, right? Mm-hmm. So that that's certainly true. So Scott, how would you define intelligence in, in maybe a scientific accurate way? Well, what I was saying is, you know, there, there's different ways of thinking about intelligence. I'm actually not the type of person that will give a and say that my word, my definition is the one way. Yeah. I think there's different ways of thinking about it. I have defined a theory of personal intelligence okay. that I think is valuable, um, where I say it's the dynamic interplay of ability and engagement in the pursuit of personal goals. And uh, and it really highlights the dynamic aspect of intelligence. It highlights, as well as the personal aspect, the fact that passion matters, engagement in what you're doing matters, but that it's a feedback cycle with ability. And skills. The more skills you are, and the more you want to engage, and the more you want to engage, um, the more it builds those skills, or the more you do engage, it builds those skills. So I have a theory of personal intelligence. So talk to me about engagement, because it seems like in our world, and I'm sure you'll agree, is distraction is is rampant, right? It's very tough to keep someone engaged, even yourself, for an extended period of time. And have you seen certain practices being most effective for for training the engagement process? I know you mentioned kind of the prerequisite of having something you're passionate about, uh, maybe learning some skills as a prerequisite to, to become better at them, and, and maybe that causes engagement. But do you have kind of a specific process that you go through to, say, upgrade engagement? I love how you said, even yourself. <laughs> it's hard It's hard to engage me for too long. Is that what you're saying? No, uh, no I'm saying I'm, I'm sure like at your level, you probably, you probably still, I'm assuming, still oh, practice. Oh, I see what you're saying. Oh, yeah, I'm human. I'm human too. Big part of engagement is uh, this concept called flow, which uh, a lot of a lot of extreme athletes and uh, anyone who's kind of top of their game uh, describes this state of total immersion in what they're doing, and all the time recedes in the background. And in order to get into that flow state, well, first of all, you can't will it to happen. You can't just say, "I'm in the flow state." You know, <laughs> won't happen. It seems like challenge and overcoming a, ch- a hardship in some way, overcoming something is a good trigger for flow. Um, being able to struggle a little bit, acquire lots of knowledge and information laboriously, and then this flow state clicks in where you, uh, it's like sleep, right? You can't like will yourself to sleep, but you can do conditions and preconditions to allow yourself to sleep. Um, this flow state is so central to engagement because when you're engaged in something, you're not, you don't have the self-critical thoughts. You don't have the, um, all the other, you, you don't have inner distractions, right? We talk a lot about external distractions, but inner distractions are really important too. You know, like, oh, I'm not good enough or, oh, um, uh, what, you know, hesitation about what you're doing. When you're in the full state, you're just one with what you're, with, with the activity. So is that because of, and I could be wrong in saying this, but a prerequisite of some level of attention required? Meaning, so the place that I tend to get into flow is if I'm like doing some aggressive mountain biking or surfing or downhill skiing or snowboarding, where it requires a degree of like uh, vigilance, 
right? That's what I'm looking for is vigilance. Like if I if I'm not vigilant, I'm gonna smash into that tree or I'm gonna like fall on my head, you know, like so if I'm not super attentive, like death is on the other side of that of that ridge, you know, so I better better start paying attention. Yeah, hyper focus is definitely a part of it. There are people who have been been diagnosed with ADHD and you find that they actually are more capable of hyper focus than people who aren't diagnosed with ADHD when they're engaged in the, something that they really love to engage in and something uh, that they really um, grabs their interest or captivates them in some way. Yeah, so total absorption, total concentration, but these kinds of states where there's a little bit of danger involved are, are good triggers for, for total absorption, right? Because you get thrown into survival mode and that's, you know, evolutionarily speaking, we we were designed, our brains were designed to be hyper-focused when we're in survival mode. So we can fool our brain, you know, by doing these kinds of activities that like, you're, you're probably going to be safe and you know it, you know, you have a lot of experience, but still our body is, you know, like freaking the F out. Yeah. I think it's, um, you know, so any of those sports I mentioned all require speed and, and anytime you, you just like, just push the speed a little bit, your brain is like, I better focus or I'm going to smash. And I think the same thing happens in training. Have you experienced this? But when you start getting to the point where, like, you're you're on the brink of like, I'm not sure if I can do this anymore. There, there. I think there requires a degree of vigilance that that turns into flow because, like, I know if I lose my focus for a split second, this shit's coming crashing down on my head, or like, I'm gonna get buried. So I have to be so aware. I, th- I think that's one of the things I loved about it was the adrenaline rush of just like I have to give every bit of my focus here. I couldn't possibly look at something else or think about something else, or I may not come back up. I've been doing motorcycle training recently. Yeah. Taking lessons and it's uh, that, yeah, you really gets you into a state, even just riding my Vespa scooter. Uh, you know, I'm like focused on the road, you know, focused on the road. Yeah. I've been doing um, airplane le- flying lessons. The same idea, right? You're like the, the fat tail risk of, of what could possibly happen if I screw up is so big. I just have to be so attentive. So I think that's really interesting to think of. And, um, I think there's there's a value in everyone intentionally inducing these things into your life. That's one of the things that I do is I look for things that allow me the opportunity to explore the brink of my level of attention. I think there's value in this. I noticed that my learning capacity, again, this is subjective, seems to increase post um, exposure to these things. Does that, does that seem possible or like something you've experienced? Uh, for what to increase your what capacity? My, my ability to well focus, my ability to retain information and learn. So, example, if I know oh, yeah. I have to write, read, retain, and recall, I'll actually go out and do a mountain bike, or I'll go out and do something where I need a high mm-hmm. degree of vigilance. And you know, I'm winding between trees, doing some off-roading stuff, and I come back, and I feel like my brain is almost you know, to use like hyperplastic, right? I feel like my brain is is ready to adapt. Does that seem like something you've experienced? Yeah, that's a really, I liked your description of that and the way you describe that. Uh, I mean, the full state really does unlock a lot of capacities we are normally dormant within us because we, we very rarely are using our full capacities in any moment. I mean, we're, um, because we're, we're so divided within and, and, uh, there's also lots of things, external, external barriers as well. If you can really get into that state, it really does pay. Uh, dividends, you know, it really does compound its value uh, over time because you're uh, you're putting your all into something. You're you're going all in, you know, cognitively. Yeah, and that's a, that's a really special special state. That's why so many people treasure it. I don't know if you've ever come across the work of Stephen Kotler. Yeah, very much. Yep. Okay, awesome. Um, 
yeah, um, a good friend of mine, and I love what they're doing with their full research collective and how they're you know training people. I was I was a coach, I was a flow coach there for a little bit before oh, I branched, branched out on my own. Yeah, yeah, I've read some of Mihai Chiksen Mihai's stuff as well. I think he was kind of the godfather of his flow state, and obviously read I think all Stephen's books. And I think it's just phenomenal. And coming back to something you said there, you mentioned it twice now, and you said in, internal distraction mm. or some iteration of it twice. Tell me about that. What's what, what's that? What's going on there when people are internally distracted? Because typically, when I'm thinking about distraction, like I'm sure you kind of corrected me on, like I'm usually focused on external distraction, focused on all the things going on around me, and I hadn't even considered this reality that maybe many people, and probably including myself, without noticing, are, are undergoing some type of cognitive distraction. So what's what what's going on there? Well, we have a, a particular brain network. I call it the default mode brain network, and uh, that that really is constantly uh, beneath the surface, uh, having all sorts of ruminations and thoughts of the future and ruminations about the past. And then we have other networks, brain networks, like the executive attention network, which is associated with our ability to focus on the outside world, to really concentrate on on uh, on something external to us. Often when we're trying to concentrate on something, this chatter from the imagination network, I call it the imagination network, but the default mode brain network is distracting us because it's it's feeding us inputs that aren't actually in existence in the world. And and they can all sometimes get us contaminated. So the more that you can see reality clearly and the more that you can silence that uh, default mode network in certain contexts can also be very powerful for creativity to engage in that imagination network. But it's all about the right place, right time, right? So talking to you right now, I need to suppress the heck out of my imagination network or else we're not going to get this interview done. <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm going to have a hard time focusing because I'm getting so many distractions from thoughts about what am I do have to do tomorrow or like, oh my God, I regret what I did that when I was in college, you know, or, oh, this thing, I don't know, whatever, just, you know, all the things that our brain constantly computes for us you know, automatically and uh, without our, our permission. <laughs> can you define the default mode network or just give a brief explanation of what it is? You can go to the brain behind me and point out the brain regions, but uh, it's uh, in the medial surface of the brain, prefrontal cortex, medial surface, communicating with areas that represent our sense of self. So it has a lot to do with self-representation and, and projecting and our own selves into the world, into the future. Like when we're imagining the future, we usually have ourselves at the center of that, you know, and uh, and this, these brain regions are really uh, really important uh, to play a role in that in in, uh, in a network sort of way. Yeah, they, they're team players. So it's effectively how we view ourselves with 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 regards to the world. Well, it has to do with self representations. Like when you ask questions like "Who am I?" You know, some of these brain regions will be active. You know, it involves a lot of sociality. So. Our ability to, for perspective taking and compassion do come from that because if you think about it, compassion requires a leap of imagination or perspective taking requires a leap of imagination. I have to try to imagine what in the world are you thinking? Um, and, and we do that by thinking, well, how would myself think, you know, under these situations, you know, and how would I? So it is a very self-focused network though. It's funny, it's paradoxical. It's self-focused, but also is what enables us to have compassion. And, and empathy for and uh, perspective taking for others. Yeah. So it's comp neuroscience is complicated. Interesting. Um, so Scott, more recently in, in your work, at least as far as my observations, you started writing about kind of this modern interpretation of self-actualization. And I'd love to have you walk us down that path because 
you know, it seems as though in your theory that it's evolving as far as um, what that actually may look like in, in modern day humans. The idea of self-actualization goes back many, many years in human history. So the idea of self-realization, you know, like the gurus in India talked about that for many, many years. When psychologists came came around, and then uh, especially the humanistic psychologist Abraham Maslow in the in the 50s, 60s, he started to think of self-actualization as, you know, what is it to become all you're capable of becoming? What is um, your greatest creative potential? Towards the end of his life, he really thought about it differently. And especially after he had a heart attack, he started to face a sense of mortality and start to realize that, you know, life is very finite. And and what a real goal of self-actualization is, is, is self-transcendence, actually, to be able to transcend ourselves and be able to put things out there in the world and realize them in a way that can help future generations. So I think the idea of self-actualization is more tied, especially in the kind of conceptualizations I'm trying to put out in like my book, Transcend, it's more tied to our ability to become what we're capable of becoming so that what is automatically good for us is automatically good for the world as well. I love that. I think a lot about, I'm a dad, and I think a lot about um, breaking cross-generational unconscious patterns. And and so, you know, oftentimes what you were taught by your parents, you're then going to be take on as your belief systems and then pass it on to your children. And and so some of those things become really, really uh, effective and useful, whereas other things become less effective as the species evolves, right? As we evolve as people, uh, even as even seeing limitations in the things you were taught in your belief systems. And I spent a lot of time really contemplating the utility of all these belief systems that I've been imparted with, whether that be from my family or from my, um, you know, experience as a child or from social, social society, all those things. And like trying to think through like, okay, which one of these have value and which one of these should I eliminate? It sounds like we're on the same page there with like, you have so much control or not control influence over what kind of gets taken from your learnings and then passed on to subsequent ones. It sounds like it's all this, hopefully, progressive narrowing of toward a worthy ideal, right? Progressive narrowing toward something that's valuable to push the human species forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you've, it sounds like you've thought a lot about these issues yourself. I do, man. I do. Yeah, that's why I said I'm a fan. Like, I'm listening to your stuff. I think, I think about these these topics a lot because ultimately that's why we're here, right? That's my thought is like, why else am I here other than to push the human species forward in whatever way possible? So, like, there was a point when you were like, oh, they considered the 11th, like, fittest man on the planet, basically, right? <laughs> like, Mr. Olympiad. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that in Canada, you've placed higher up, but I'm saying in terms of like all of humanity. <laughs> mm-hmm. now, now, to get to that point, what is your underlying motivation? Um, do you believe by being able to push those limits of what person's body can do and what you're capable of that you're kind of like advancing humanity in a way because more people are able to kind of see what's possible? No. So when I was in it, yeah. All I could think about is I wanted to be the best version of myself. I was, as far as I know, I can't speak for everybody, but I was, I had zero attachment to the outcome. I was so process oriented. The only reason I did a show, I used to say the show is a pageant. The only reason I did it was to see how much I progressed. I've progressed from show to show to show. My focus was exclusively about like, call it self-actualization. I was like, I have a belief that if I do my best in all of these areas, my best will get me to where I want to go. And that's all I was focused on. It's like, 
could I do better? Could I do better? Can I do better? How can I get better? That was it. And that so it was completely selfish. It's completely ego driven. But when my children were born in 2012, which I was like at the peak of my career, I was just beginning. My children were born. Everything shifted. All my all my um, uh, selfishness fell away. It was like I can't continue to be this selfish, driven person when it, and come home to these two angels. I just couldn't do it. So that completely allowed me to then shift the focus away from an egocentric drive to just be the best version of myself to now, like, okay, what can I pass on of all these lessons that I've accumulated through this. 15 years onto this next generation of, you know, young, young, aspiring athletes and aspiring bodybuilders, dads, peers, whatever. Like if I can contribute to someone, that's where I feel like I kind of cut my teeth. Yeah. What are some of the activities in your life these days that give you the greatest meaning? This podcast, I assume. You know what the podcast, the only reason I started the podcast, it's funny. It started in 2013. So I've been doing almost 10 years. And wow, that's uh, a long time in podcast. A long time in the podcast space, right? The wow. reason I started, you'll, I mean, you'll you'll probably appreciate this is like I was a terrible communicator. I wasn't good at asking questions. I didn't have a good attention span, and I wanted to learn from the smartest people in the world. So I was like, this is going to make me a much more effective communicator. It's my greatest form of learning. Like I can call someone like you who's written ten books. I can call you up and go, "Hey, Scott, let's have a conversation about all the cool stuff you're thinking about." That's such a gift. So I leveraged my platform. To being honest about it, I leveraged my platform to just like start being able to have a conversation with brilliant people. So I feel very blessed. So, and then I think I have a unique perspective because I can ask questions to you that my audience wants to hear about because I, I know where they are. I know the challenges they're experiencing. And I think that was why this, I mean, this is a big thing for me. I really enjoy doing it. Well, this is the the problem when you get another podcast host on your podcast is that they're asking me questions. <laughs> he turns it around, but, oh. but I am curious, what are the other things in your life that give you the greatest meaning? My children, like um, they could bring you outside of yourself. Yeah. Connecting with my children is the, my my greatest wow, greatest value, my my deepest meaning by far. And I think it's still applying the same principles that I applied in bodybuilding, but now mm. to that's, this sounds really cheesy, but but the accumulation of wisdom so that I can contribute back to anyone who comes into my life. I, I love the idea of um, supporting literally anyone man so any city i'm in any any environment i'm in i just i I just love to lift people up i think i I struggled a lot as a kid i was spent a lot of time by myself yeah kind of kind of a lonely kid from the time i was seven didn't have a lot of uh people in my life and so i always wanted someone to look to look up to someone who would take me under their wing and support them i never had them i never i did it all by myself until i was 30 years old right well i mean i had some mentors along the way Wow. but now like when i look at kids i was like man Come here, let, let me help you, man. Like I could support you with that. Let me, let me point you in the right direction, right? And I'll give all my time to a younger generation, or really anyone who is is having a hard time because I know what they're what they're going through. I love that. Wow, you're very very service oriented. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Now stop yeah. asking me questions. <laughs> Spin it around on me. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can regain regain control now. But I know, man. I'm just begging. Thank you, Scott. Oh no, I know you're you're a very interesting guy. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thank you. There's so many questions I want to ask you, but I'm super curious yeah. to dive into is like, you, you've written a, a large number of books, which one was maybe the most eye opening for you as far as like, as you started to do the research for the book, really started to change your perspective on human dynamics, because I think it seems as though there's many different people at the top of, of the psychology space, coming at it from a different perspective, everyone's looking at it from, so it sounds to me, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, I'm not going to say what it sounds like. Um, but yeah, I'm just curious, which book 
maybe had the greatest impact on your understanding or your current understanding of human dynamics? Wow. I, it was probably uh, my book, Ungifted, Intelligence Redefined. I went into that uh, project with um, really agnostic about what the truth was, uh, wanting to just w- ravishly curious of all different sides of what is intelligence, all different sides of the debate. And what I tried to do is synthesize it all and to see what would kind of emerge from the integration of lots of different perspectives. But I present, I go through chapter by chapter and present wildly different perspectives. You know, I have a chapter on gifted children. Um, then I have a chapter on like the idea there's no such thing as gifted children. It's all about like, you know, like what, what the person does, you know, it's not the essence of who you are, you know? And then I uh, went through and uh, looked at the science of IQ. And I think that like a lot of people kind of expected me to be anti-IQ. Do you know what IQ is, by the way? Have you ever mm-hmm. taken yep. IQ? Do you have you taken IQ test? No. What's your non-muscle intelligence? <laughs> I honestly don't know. Yeah, it's probably for the better that that none of us, you know, walk around knowing what it is. I'm not saying it's for the better. You don't know, but I'm about yourself. But why is that? It's probably because it seems limiting to be able to walk around like having a number in your head of your human potential. <laughs> yeah, and then do you, so would you agree with the validity of it? Would you say like if I'm like yeah. 125, this is this is my cap? No. So so I was going to say that a lot of people would expect that I am an anti IQ. Uh, and writing that book, but I do take a very nuanced view um, in that I do think like IQ measures a very specific um, set of skills that are uh, valuable and um, and uh, are reasonably part of what we'd want to think of as important for intelligence, like ability for problem solving and quick learning, memory, uh, working memory capacity, things that certainly decline as we get older. I mean, I think we can all say that we're not as sharp IQ wise, uh, right now, uh, well, me and you probably aren't as sharp IQ wise as we were when we were twenty. Do, you, do you, I mean? Do you can you tell that difference at all? No, I would say I'm way better. Okay, way better. okay, yeah, you're honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Most people, their fluid intelligence, maybe their crystallized intelligence improves where their knowledge is is good, but their their how quick they are to learn uh, tends to decline after like age twenty one. Well, I Kinahara, as they say in the in the Jewish religion. I hope uh, you you uh, you get to be age eighty and and still feel that way. So yeah. let me let me let me dive into this because like so, how how much have you studied? I mean, I'm curious if you studied neuroscience, neurophysiology, neurobiology, in as much as its implication on IQ. So what I get to thinking is how much is IQ influenced by neuroelectricity processing speed and integration of the hemispheres, like the, the synchronization of the hemispheres. So if I were to be intentional about potentially finding ways to increase the neuroelectrical signals in my brain and, and synchronizing the hemispheres, would that have any implication on my ability to increase processing speed? Well, you're asking some pretty profound questions. The brain network most associated with IQ test performance doesn't have so much to do with your communication between your hemispheres as it does between communication between the frontal lobe and the parietal lobe, which can be on both sides of the brain. So the extent to which uh, you have executive processing capacity to hold multiple things in your head at one time and uh, be able to process and focus on something while keeping something else in the background and being able to bring that back when necessary and be able to see the relevant aspects of a situation and discard the irrelevant aspects, um, that seems to be that that ability capacity seems to be highly correlated with 
with IQ test performance, it actually processing speed itself, just your ability to um, quickly like do a task, like a clerical kind of task, is not strongly correlated with IQ as much as like abstract reasoning or uh, or like uh, uh, your ability to form analogies. Like your ability to form analogies seems to be a central part of what uh, IQ test performance is really hitting. So I wouldn't even say processing speed is the most central part of the IQ construct. So have you, are you familiar with neurofeedback? Yes, yes. Have you, do you, have you, have you dabbled, dabbled? A little bit, yeah. So that's, you know, in principle, what neurofeedback is attempting to do, right, is to, is to synchronize these hemispheres of the brain. And apparently that there's the capacity to, if you want to sync the frontals and the parietals, we could probably find a way to train specifically that. Any experience of that? Any belief if that's possible and if it would impact IQ? Yeah, it, it, yeah, it, that's what they're doing in like uh, called the NBAC task, or they have a lot of cognitive training programs that tries to boost your working memory. Yep. That really is operating on that frontal parietal network, brain network. That's what it's doing when it's trying to work on working memory. But yeah, there are different different kinds of cognitions, different kinds of tasks. There are some that do try to improve your processing speed. Um, the idea of synchronizing both hemispheres, um, can you elaborate more what, what exactly that means? So I don't know if I'm being honest. Like I know, I know, I know. Super. That sounds like some bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I, I asked. I know a I know a small amount, right? Like only I, I always say, like my level of ignorance there is probably much greater than my knowledge. So, yes. from what I understand, obviously we could potentially sync the left and right hemispheres, but we can also potentially sync or not. Yeah, maybe sync the the specific lobes. So if if, if sometimes the left parietal is not firing in sequence with the right parietal. And if we learn to synchronize those things, it actually increases the overall amplitude of both of them, kind of like a cumulative effect. So maybe increase network transmission, communication. I'm trying to try to translate that into actual neuroscience. Uh, <laughs> Tell <principles>. me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what that means. Maybe that's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. and I, yeah, I, I could see that. Yeah, we, we know, for instance, that the, the network efficiency of the default mode network that I was talking about earlier actually predicts your personality trait on uh, something called openness to experience. Um, we published a paper showing that to be the case. How, how quickly uh, do those different regions of, the, of that brain network communicate with each other uh, so is associated with your everyday openness to, uh, to new ideas and to, yeah, yeah. I would love to understand more about that. So as we age, and this is completely a subjective interpretation or, or my, my judgment, as we age, it seems many people become more and more closed off to new experiences. They tend to, I always call it like the walls are closing around you, right? It's like, I, I don't want to do this. Eventually it's like, I don't want to leave my house. I, you know, I'm either I'm afraid or I feel it's going to be overwhelming or, or the juice not worth the squeeze type scenario. So I'm curious about that. And so that's a really interesting. So that's a direct correlation to lessening function of, of executive functioning. Uh, what, what, what aspect exactly? Well, what you said there, the, the likelihood of people to not want to, uh, the, the lack of openness to experience, so the, the opposite of openness to experience. Well, that's a very interesting question about the opposite. That openness to experience trait is number one correlated with creativity, number one correlated with your ability to imagine. And that is, does seem to be tied to the efficiency of, your, of that imagination brain network. So thinking about closed-mindedness, I, I suppose people who uh, are extraordinarily closed-minded very rarely tap into into that brain network. Yeah, they are so uh, 
they're so focused. What are they focused on? They're focused. This is a good thought experiment. Like, you know, I've never really had to reason this through the opposite. (laughs) I I suppose that they are really um, uh, shut down from allowing their inner stream of consciousness be integrated with their outer world, you know, in, in creative ways, you know, to find new meanings. Like they're not really open to new meanings. Right. So would it be be logical then to say even in children to intentionally subject them to things that allow them to have creativity, to allow them to experience new things? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. That that's, that's really, I I didn't know that. That's a huge um, win for me today. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. One of the things I love to dig into is like what's different and what stayed the same. So as far as your theories, you know, you've went to some of the top schools in the world, you've taught at some of the top schools in the world. You've obviously got a very deep understanding uh, of the basic theories that have been around for a long time in psychology. And I'm curious, you know, which of those things have stayed the same that s- still feel like they're, they're principles that are grounded in reality and grounded in, in, in value. And which things in the last couple of years have you changed your mind on just being like, yeah, this theory has completely gone out the, gone out the window? When I was in graduate school, I used to be a believer in implicit bias uh, and the idea that, uh, well, we can tell, you know, how uh, 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 racist someone is by looking at how quickly they associate certain words with other words at an unconscious level. Hmm. And what we've discovered in the field since then is really that that's a bunch of bullshit <laughs> that uh, that implicit bias, uh, you know, is um, probably more a reflection of how our society uh, and the media uh, tells us things uh, at subconsciously. We, we can uh, we can rapidly associate things with each other, but that doesn't really it's not very really strongly at all predicted with our explicit behaviors. OK, so um, a lot of us probably have a lot of associations with things, but once they reach our consciousness, we inhibit them. Once they reach our consciousness, we're like, you know, they're like, uh, we, we use our conscious thought to to not be racist humans. Right. So I think that that's a big one. That's a big one. That implicit bias literature it has turned out to not really hold up to scrutiny. That's a great one. And so is there anything that, you know, as far as the main the main psychological principles that you're like, yeah, this is something that I think is going to hold true f- for yes. the rest of the so I the, the a lot of this research in social psychology is not replicated like like this implicit stuff un, unconscious stuff but um I I'm happy to report that uh, a lot coming from my own field of personality psychology will probably stay on the test of time uh, because humans uh, don't evolve that qu- quickly <laughs> how do I say how do I say um, you know, we're we're still got this the minds of we did uh pretty much when we were on the savannah desert. Yeah, when we were yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The savannah, yeah. We uh we're really not that much different as much as we like to think we are, you know, like have you been on Twitter? You know, like have you seen have you looked at reality TV shows? Okay. So I think that there are certain principles of human nature that uh you know we can look at in the, in the field of evolutionary psychology, certain mating mating principles i think are uh pretty rock solid you know um about like what what people find attractive you know i mean i mean that's a very controversial <laughs> it's so controversial to say it might be- <laughs> wow that there could be objective principles of attractiveness that that, that across time but there are body symmetry you know yeah. like things on the face that indicate lack of pathogens right like you know look there's there are a certain degree of subjectivity as well 
But then um, outside of the meeting world, also personality. So I think that, you know, you have these five basic uh, personality traits, the dimensions people differ on, uh, agreeableness, extroversion, uh, conscientiousness, neuroticism, and uh, we talked about openness to experience. I don't think we're going to find at some point that like suddenly we're wrong and like, uh, well, one of those dimensions doesn't exist. Right. <laughs> Actually, introverts don't exist. <laughs> we Scientists discovered. That'd, that'd be a funny onion head. That, wouldn't that be actually a really a hilarious onion headline? Intro, scientists found that introverts don't exist. <laughs> Man, it wouldn't surprise me with the with the BS the media throws out there. It's just all it's all clickbait, right? Yeah, yeah often yeah. it's kind of funny. Yeah, you know, you're right. You're right. That is tragic. Uh, that uh, the kind of BS, but that would be a funny onion headline. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think with the field of personality psychology, because you're dealing with things over time, uh, and also a lot of the stuff coming out in evolutionary psychology on like mating um, uh, that has been that has been replicated over different cultures. Um, there's there's a lot of shoddy evolutionary psychology, but there are some really tried and true findings, you know, about differences between males and females and what they're looking for and. Um, you know, will scientists ever discover that women don't like money <laughs> in a man? <laughs> like, will there ever be a point where, like, research finds they were wrong? Women actually don't want a man who's so, resourceful. Is it, you know what I mean? Yeah. What is it? Is it resourcefulness? Is it safety and security? Like, there's got to be ability to provide yeah. for your children, whatever that looks like in whatever context. So it might not just be money. It's also social status. It's also you know, being a prestigious man, I've re- I've written about that. Um, the the real what the real alpha man looks like. I've I've written articles about that. Oh, I'd love to actually. I'd love to have you share that. It'd be very interesting to me. What is the what is a real alpha man? Well, I will send you my article. Um, uh, the art of manliness. I wrote an article called uh, "I wrote the myth of the alpha male." Well, the thing is, there are uh, through the course of evolutionary history, um, there were two different paths to social status that uh, evolved one is through brute force and physical strength um, yep. and the other is through uh, social status and expertise and being considered a, a, a leader of your tribe and uh, i just sent it to you in the chat window of the article yep. there's i think there's a great myth that like the alpha male is only comprised of that uh brute physical uh domination uh, or aggressiveness uh root um, i think that's a great myth so I, I I talk about that in this article. Yeah, I, I dominant versus prestige. Yeah, I would say it's a degree of of. I mean, so the word confidence is to me it's a ambiguous word. It's not it's not clear. I think the word is certainty. Right when I think of like a, a an alpha male, there's a degree of like certainty that comes with that. There's a degree of like you you know where you're going. You're confident in your ability to get there, and you get in any room. You're confident what what your ability your ability to 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 hang with anybody in that room. You know, there's there's that confidence is maybe the same thing, but I think certainty is the word that comes to mind to me. Is, is that yeah. any theory or any thought on that? I need to think about that a little bit further about uh, uh, the role that certainty plays because humility is is very very valuable if defined as an accurate assessment of your capacities. Not, I don't view humility as a way of lowering yourself in any way. But it's an accurate assessment of your capacities, and that to me that's a is a great form of confidence. Yeah, so I wouldn't I wouldn't definitely say certainty in the absence of humility for sure. I would like that. that nice. Yeah, yeah. I would certainly wouldn't say that. I think it's like, yeah, it's. Um, I don't know. I don't want to get into too much detail because this is a thought experiment again, and we'll, we'll go off off track too much. 
Very, very interesting. I'd be very, I'm going to read that article for sure. And I'll link to it in the show notes for anybody listening. So you wrote this, oh, 2014. So it's been a while. It's been a while, but I have not changed my thoughts uh, on that topic much at all. But, you know, even that article got some hate from uh, from the Uber bros. Um, uh, you know, they, they, uh, you know, they, 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 they said, they said, this article is written by a beta <laughs> and I'm like, okay, okay. Are you the professor of Columbia? <laughs> totally. Man. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, man. So when I write something, Scott, I just assume that 50% of people are going to think I'm an asshole. I just always, I'm like, I don't care, man. Like I have yeah, to put it out there. It's care. my opinion. If you don't like it, That's I'm right. sorry. You can't care. You can't go through life caring or else you, you won't do it. You won't do good work. Yeah. 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 I think it, definitely. I think the people who succeed in life are the ones who are willing to put themselves out there and realize you're going to support yeah. some people and you're not going to support everyone. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It sounds like we have a lot of areas of interest. Yeah. So what areas right now that you're studying are most interesting to you? Like when you go home and you pick up a book or when you go home and you, and you start doing research, what is like, gosh, I'm, I'm really excited to discover more about this. Well, I have a lot on my mind about this concept called vulnerable entitlement, mm, totally uh, which I, yeah, I'm really interested in this idea of a vulnerable narcissism. You feel like you're entitled to special privileges purely because you've suffered in the past and not because of anything you've done to earn, earn it, but because you have less than others. And I am uh, really fascinated with this um, fascinating uh, paradox because I really want to help every individual grow. Uh, into their best self. And I think that this mentality is really a big inhibitor of growth um, because it leads you to a lot of resentment and it leads you to a lot of um, avoidance of things that would get you out of your comfort zone. And I also think it avoids connection and um, and people uh, living in more harmony with each other. Um, so I, I see it as a big barrier to a lot of problems we see in the world today is this vulnerable narcissism. Is there a lot of research already done on the other side of that, which is the people who have done something who also feel a sense of entitlement? Because I've dealt with that a lot in my life. With that's called, yes, that's called grandiose narcissism. Oh, man. Body, so again, it, it's it's the fault of every pro, uh, every person who puts a pro athlete on a pedestal because yeah. every pro athlete in the world gets everything they want for free and they don't have to, like, they just get treated like they're, I mean, like they're royalty, right? Yeah. And that becomes, I'm, I'm all for like helping people that you admire and like put them on great, but when they start to expect it, then that's a different game. Like when, you know, I know guys who just, I'm not going to pay for this. Why would I pay for this? I'm, I'm this guy. And you're like, what the hell are you talking about, man? Who that's are you? grandiose narcissism. And that is distinguished from vulnerable. Grandiose narcissists think they're entitled to things because they think they're superior to others. Right. Whereas vulnerable narcissists think they're entitled to things because they have less than others. So how do we help these people? We really can. I think we need empathy. Uh, first of all, we need to like not pathologize it. Not talk about like, oh, those narcissists, you know, and make fun of them. <laughs> <laughs> but recognize we all have the potentiality for this within all of us, um, especially with vulnerable narcissism, uh, realizing that that it's it's that your sense of self is 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 uh, is um is on a very false foundation. Um, your true self is going to be one that has a complexity to it. Your true self is going to be one that does fail, that does like like perfectionism is the enemy of growth as well, right? Like. And, and you see a lot of perfectionism among vulnerable narcissists. They have a lot of shame. They walk around with a lot of shame for um, for not being perfect. And they start becoming resentful and project that onto others. So I would say like huge uh, route to self-actualization and growth is to minimize the shame emotion in your system and to constantly get out there and 
like even just like seek out failure, you know, like, look, man, I, I, I went to a, a range and I did a weekend Harley Davidson motorcycle class after never stepping on a motorcycle my entire life. And I took this class with people who've been doing it for like 10 years. And I probably, they said I got the worst score in the history on the driving test <laughs> at the end of that weekend. I probably got the worst score in the history of Harley Davidson <laughs> motors since they started making motorcycles. But I felt such a sense of accomplishment. Because if you think about it, I went from like never even seeing on a motorcycle. 10 hours later, I was going around and swiveling around cones. I was doing sharp turns. Like, you know, I was like, that's amazing accomplishment because I'm, I'm, I'm talking about just in terms of improvement within myself. That's all I'm focused on. Right. Right. Now, did you see what I'm saying as opposed to having shame for failing the driving test? Totally. Yeah. So where does that come from? So I'll give you an example of you and I being, being kid and souls on this. When I first learned to snowboard, I went to the top of the highest gondola that I could find or the highest chairlift, uh, chairlift in Whistler, which is an enormous mountain. And it took me six and a half hours to get to the bottom. But by the time I got to the bottom, I was like, not great, but I was competent. I was able to stand up and not fall on my head. So like, that's the type of thing. I was like, yeah, man, I don't know how I'm going to figure it out. But you put yourself in the situation where you're like, sink or swim, man, figure it out. You're either going to walk your way down or you're going to ride your way down. And it worked. Yeah. And you got to like, not be ego attached to the outcome. That's, that's a key part of it. And I mean, narcissists are so ego attached to everything. Like everything they do is ego attached. It's right. just like, detach it from your ego. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. I think it sounds like perfectionism, right? It's like, if I'm not good enough yet, I'm not good to start. I won't start at all, which just yeah. doesn't make sense. Like, how are you ever going to get there if you don't start? That's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. You had an interesting theory that I read one of your articles about recently. It was on your social media, maybe not, maybe it was on your website, speaking about um, really zeroing in on the individuality of the human being and not, not trying to pigeonhole people into specific ways to pursue or specific ways to be. I'd love to kind of start picking your brain on that a little bit. Wow. Well, I really, I mean, in the last two minutes, <laughs> uh, uh, wow. Uh, well, I really am. A, I'm a humanistic psychologist, so I really do believe in treating individuals as individuals. Um, I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of tribalism and I'm not a big fan of, uh, of reducing people to their group membership, even politically, you know? I don't think if you're a Republican, you're evil. I don't think if you're like, you know, if you're like, whatever you are, I won't, I, I will treat you like an individual. I will look to, I'll hear you out as a human. <laughs> I've never quite phrased it that way, but I like that. I want to write that down. Hear you out as human. Cause that's just my belief system. Those are my values. Um, and I think that we, uh, people just are not talking to each other uh, these days because they have, they're projecting. So they're filling in too many blanks about the other person. Is it fear doing that, Scott? Is that your? Is that what seems to be the root of? of yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And some of that fear is warranted. I mean, absolutely, it's some of it's warranted. Like, a, let's say you're a black person and you grew up in an environment where um, there was constant racism in your childhood, uh, and that was a real experience for you. You may start to generalize as a protective mechanism uh, to shut down. You know, as an adult, when you see someone that looks like someone in your childhood that treated you a certain way. This is why I write in my book Transcend that. Fear of learning and fear of unlearning are actually housed in different parts of the brain. So you can go through your whole life learning fear, but if you never do the active strategies to unlearn that fear or extinguish it, you're you're constantly walking around with these implicit projections that uh, could really inhibit your growth and connection with others. Do you walk through the processes in your book on how to unwind fear? Because that, that would be very, very useful. To a certain degree, yeah. I mean, it, it a lot of that is a matter of... Uh, 
changing from a deficit mindset in life to a growth mindset, uh, to, or, um, maybe not mindset, but motivation, you know, what, what are you motivated? Are you motivated to be curious about others, to learn, to grow, or are you curious about protecting yourself at all times, right? These are different mentalities. And, uh, I think, uh, we can play around in these different spaces at different times and for different purposes. I love that. I think if more people just took the mindset of everyone in the world, is just trying to figure it out. Yes. Some people are assholes. Yeah, some people are fixing their ways, but ultimately we're all just trying to figure out, you know, the best approach to support ourselves and maybe hopefully support our community. And I think if people just had an open mind to, to seek to understand rather than condemn, um, hopefully the world starts to open up and, and not be such a polarizing place. Although I, I'm sure you get like the small subcultures of the world seem to have the loudest voices. And those are the people because of social media now they're getting all this publicity. And, and that that's what's causing in my judgment. Uh, that's what's causing the polarization is these really small subcultures that are not represent, representative of the whole uh, just tend to scream louder than everybody else. I love that. Well, it sounds like we're on a very similar wavelength about a lot of this. And and kudos to you for what you've accomplished and what you've, uh, you know, you've been able to overcome as well. I mean, that's, that's, um, it's not easy. Thanks, man. Dude, I want to be respectful of your time. That was a great conversation. I will definitely be listening to your podcast. I'd love to have you back on to go a little bit deeper sometime. And thank you very much for being here, Scott. Thanks, buddy. It was a real pleasure. Where should we send people to learn more about you? Should we send them the podcast or would you prefer to go to the website? They go to the psychologypodcast.com. They can check out my Center for Human Potential at centerforhumanpotential.com, godbarrykoffman.com. You come to my address. I live at uh, 142. Uh, no, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. But, uh, my phone no. number. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you can uh, mess email me uh, the contact forms on my website. Uh, yeah, so really, uh, yeah, there's lots of ways of uh, keeping up with what I do. Great, buddy. Thanks very much for being here, Scott. Thank you. I wanted to say one more thing, if I may. Sure. Yeah, of course. Uh, I have a new book coming out September 13th. Yeah. I'm um, called Choose Growth. So check that out. I will mention that in the um, pre and post show and uh, definitely link to it in the show notes. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. For full episode guides with important takeaways and bonus resources, head over to muscleintelligence.com slash learn. If you enjoy the show and find value in the content, please subscribe, share this podcast with at least one person you know and love who would benefit from this content, leave us a review, and support our sponsors. You can see the full list of show sponsors, discounts, and get exclusive Muscle Intelligence deals at muscleintelligence.com slash resources. To join our private community and get VIP access to my master classes, upcoming muscle camps, and other resources that we don't post anywhere else, head to muscleintelligence.com slash community. Most of all, thank you very much for your trust, for your time, and most importantly, for supporting health and fitness in this world. Enjoy your day, and I look forward to seeing you here next week. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. 
This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.